Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we delve into what it means to be bold. If you're climbing, hiking or running in the mountains, there will always be an element of risk. But being bold is not necessarily just about physical risk, of course. At some point, we all encounter mental barriers. Whether it's a fear of falling, a fear of failure, or trying to adopt a mindset for optimum performance, simply to be the best we can be. Here's a taste of what's coming up. So I knew that I was going to be in a death death situation, and I wanted to be absolutely used mentally to be familiar with the fact that if I made any mistake when I was climbing, it would be fatal. No matter how much stronger I get in my fingers, how much more power I get, how much better I get on all aspects, unless I can control my mind and, and my nerves, I'm just going to struggle on these things. In this episode, I speak to Jerry Moffat, arguably one of the best climbers in the world in the 1980s and the 90s. We talk about being bold, about Masters Wall, possibly the first E9 in the world. But then we talk about Jerry becoming unstuck in competitions, hitting mental barriers and what he did to overcome that. We talk about how he dealt with injuries. We also talk about his book, Mastermind, which among other things, deals with goal setting, how to handle anxiety before a climb, deal with pressure on a climb. It's not just Jerry's experiences of this book, it's, it chronicles experiences of Chris Sharma, Adam Ondra, Alex Megos, and countless other world-class climbers. Jerry just has so much energy. He's a real tour de force. Jerry, great to see you. Yeah, nice to see you as well. I've heard you're on a mini comeback. No, I'm joking, but you, you have been <laughs> sighted at Stony Middleton, minus 10. Is that right? Uh, yes, yeah, I've been doing a bit of climbing. Um, I just found it's good for my back and good for exercise, good for the social side of it. I started doing just one or two days down at the foundry. What was it like was... being back at minus 10? What do you feel like? There's so many memories from being down there and those early training days. And Yeah, it's, good. it's great to be back at Stoney, just, just walking up the crag and driving past where the cafe used to be. And uh, at my age, it's great to have all those memories and you look up and you think, well, that's where I did that and that's where I did that and that's still there. And I remember meeting a friend, he was walking that way and I was walking this way and I said, do you want to do a climb? That was Neil Mulder. And then we ended up climbing together for the next two years. I met him at Stoney. He walked past and said, do you want to do a route? He said, yes. And then he belayed me on Bitterfingers. Never met the guy before. Uh, that's how it was back then. You just... Um, you never, you never thought to yourself, I wonder if he will catch him if I fall off. You just completely trusted them to delay you. Whereas now, I'd be like, oh, making sure they're holding on to the And it was a small world, stuff. really, wasn't it, climbing? Yeah, it was very small. Yeah, yeah. You, you never saw, you very rarely saw other, any other people at any crag you went to. And I remember being a kid there and looking around at minus 10 and you were all there with dyed hair. <laughs> and I was from bars and like, who are these guys? And you, the back of the ladder was up. Really? Quentin. Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing it and I was wow. like, wow, that's the real deal. And we were just like looking in, look at these guys are training. And yeah, I yeah. know it was really yeah. interesting. And then the Broadfield where, you know, everybody used to hang out as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I think for this podcast, the, the Mountain People Cost, we want to sort of delve into sort of the mind, the barrier, some of the challenges you, you, you've overcome in your climbing career, all the different spheres, you know, from sort of trad comps. I mean, and I guess to start with, might be worth talking about the early days where you got into climbing. You you went to school in Clandudno. Yes, I went, to Stir- I went to Stir- in Clandudno and we had a climbing club at school. So we had a very enthusiastic uh, climbing teacher called Pete, Lives- Pete Levers. And every Wednesday afternoon and Saturday afternoon, there was a climbing club. We went out in a minibus and we were taken out and we were just left to our own devices pretty much. So you'd have eight people, you'd split into twos. One person would climb with Pete Livesey, uh, Pete Levers rather, and um, it's pretty amazing really, it's 16, to the, for him to go right, there's your rope, there's your route, off you go. He never went over and checked the belaying or the, that you tied on properly on your harnesses or anything, we just went off and went climbing, he had to wear a helmet. And um, it was a great, uh, it was a great sense of freedom, you know, it's like, when you're a teenager and learning to ride a bike the first time and being able to leave your parents' house, this is a rebellious, dangerous sport with nobody watching you. And I like that sense of danger and 
the adventure and the excitement, you know, even though you might be doing a three pitch route on Dennis Mott, and I'll never forget doing one with my best friend Andy Henry, it was a, a three pitch, uh, hard, severe, we thought we were just absolutely amazing on this thing, B Lang and Andy led it all, I, I seconded it, he was better than me back then, but it, it was just so exciting, I remember getting to the top and thinking we've done it, this three pitch layback, you know. And did you know straight away with climbing, this, you found something here special? Uh, no, not straight away, when I, when I first went I was a bit indifferent about it and then I'd I'd started, we'd started going out into town and going to pubs so one week I'd go out in town and the next week I'd go climbing and then I think after about three or four months I started to get a bit more hooked and then one summer holidays uh, I went back to Leicester had nothing to do we had a few old barns near the house I lived in the countryside I got some wooden blocks and nailed them to the barn and started traversing so I just, I, you know, have a train this on. I thought I'll just do a bit of traversing, just for something to do. Not for, not for a goal specifically. No, not for a goal. No, it was just for something to do. I like climbing, and I just thought I'll, I'll just go traversing. It's it's something to do. Uh, and then by the end of the holidays, I managed to traverse to traverse this wall just on the little brick edges, and it was actually quite hard. And looking back on it, what I was doing was bouldering every single day on these brick edges. Uh, and back then, people weren't bouldering. Uh, and I was doing this very high intensity finger training every yeah. <laughs> every single day. Uh, you know, I'd walk the dog over to this barn, they'd do a bit of traversing, then I'd come back and I'd do some pull-ups just for something to do. Yeah. And then when I came back to school, I'd had a huge jump in, in my grades. So before I was climbing hard VS, and when I came back the first day, I top roped to an E2. Uh, and back then it was really hard. I'd never seen anybody, to that date, I'd never seen anybody climb with chalk. I'd never seen anybody do an extreme. Uh, it, it was quite rare that you saw people climbing in climbing shoes. Uh, yeah. And then later on we saw these guys on forward doing um, uh, doing this e E2 called Freedom and they're on this hanging beeler and they had headbands on and chalk bags. And we were just like, whoa whoa look at them it was so exciting thinking bloody hell there's some extreme climbers and this is before e1 e2 or anything like that it was just uh, mild extreme extreme and hard extreme it's all the guidebooks that were just those sort of three grades yes you know, yeah at the higher end yeah. and so at the, at the school I actually went to the school one time there's a picture of you in the school did you know that on the wall right so you're there. obviously one of their star pupils yeah. and it was i yeah. mean it's a special school in it for people with yes people there with dyslexia Yes. So I would imagine there was, for people at that school and yourself, like sport was a big deal. Yes, I mean, it was, it was, dyslexia was very, very early on. So I went to the, it, before that, I went to a school in Somerset called Eddington, which was the very first dyslexic school uh, probably in the world, certainly the, the first in England. And there was 30 children in the whole school. Um, I couldn't read and write when I was 10 or 11. Uh, and I went there and we had very, very intensive tuition. I went there for two years and then when I was 11, uh, was it, no, yeah, I think it was about, maybe 13, I went to St. David's and St. David's was a sports school with a small dyslexic department which had just started. Okay. But the main thing was, it wasn't an academic school, it was a sports school. And I still think it's probably the, the best in the country for doing varied sports. So, it, you know, you could go climbing, caving, canoeing, sailing. Uh, we had two rugby pitches, we had a cricket pitch, we had tennis courts, we had a lot of good sports And for there. people listening, they might not know, but they've also got, it's surrounded by cliffs. Yes. Pentruin is yes. basically across from the school. Yes. Which obviously you went on to do some of the hardest routes in the world at the time on the cliff later, but we'll get yeah. to that. Yeah. You moved to Sheffield. We're just trying to work that out where it was. You, you think that was about 1980? Uh, I was 17 when I came yeah. to the Peak District. So I left school at 17. I spent the summer in Traumatic with my best mate at the time, Andy Pollitt, doing routes there. And then in the winter, obviously Wales was a bit out of the, out of the question with the weather. So we hitched to um, Stoney and I spent that winter at Stoney Middleton. And probably most of the next winter at Stoney Middleton. So I think it was about 18 which was around 1980, when I moved to Sheffield, but I, I just slept on the floor in my mate's bedsit. So Stony Middleton would have been living in the woodshed, dossing out, climbing as much as possible. 
Yes, yeah, climbing, climbing every day, and then every two weeks I'd go back home and sign on. I was on the dole for seven years. Yeah. Uh, I didn't sign on for about the first year, uh, then, I, then I signed on, and I'd go back to my parents in Leicester, and then hitch, hitch back there, but it was just a base, so sometimes you'd go there in the summer, you'd go to Wales or the Lake District or, or different What was places. climbing like then in terms of the vibe? I mean, we, I mean it was, there was a lot of bold climbing going on, wasn't there? Just trying to yes, describe the scenes. So it, was, um, it, was, it wasn't so bold. It wasn't so bold in, in, um, at Stoney in, in, in the winters and stuff. It was more, you know, you top rope stuff for training. You'd lead routes, but it didn't feel bold. It was just trad climbing, and we didn't know any difference. I'd never clipped bolts, and I'd never done any sport climbing, so that there was none of that. So you never, you never thought to miss it, or you know. But in terms it, of the the ethics, like first ascent ethics. Uh, first ascent ethics. At the time, we were doing stuff with yo-yos, so there was no red pointing. Um, so you'd climb up as high as you could. If you fell off, you'd probably sit on that bolt try the moves around there, feel it and stuff. You wouldn't get to the next piece in gear, put it in, but you might climb up a little bit and then let go and then you'd lower off, have a rest and then climb back up. And then occasionally, if it was a real hard route, you might leave your ropes in for the next day, but there was nothing sieged. So the longest I ever spent on a route was three days, but normally it would be like one day and that was it. No, you didn't go back to routes repeatedly. And there was a bit of a soloing scene uh, I like I like soloing. Yeah, Ron did a bit of soloing. Um, uh, we did we did solo stuff, but I mean I I mean I soloed Scarab back then in eighty. I think it was about eighty one. It was a top rope route, and I top roped it a lot. I'd done a bit of soloing. I don't remember doing Wee Doris then, but I uh, I top rope Scarab a lot, which is now E six, and. When I did it, it's exactly the same as now, so all the holes had come off it. Yeah. Um, and But I really scared myself on it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I top roped it loads of times. So I thought, all right, I'll solo it because I never fall off it. And I nearly fell off the first move. I was so scared. And I fought my way to the top and did it. Um, but in retrospect, back then, that was, nobody in the world was coming close to soloing E6 in, it, at that time. It was, it was you know, way ahead of its time. But that really scared me and I didn't do anything really for a long time after that. And I never, never again approached a solo like I did that one where I made a declaration to my mate, right, I'm going to solo it now. I never said that again. I'm not going to do it. I'll have a look. And if I, if I want to do it, I'll do it. But I never, I never committed to, to a declaration of I will do it. So it was always, I'll have a look. But I had my mind I always said, if I don't feel good, I'm just going to climb back down. <clears throat> I mean... I wanted to talk a little bit about Masters Wall because I was chatting to a friend at the weekend who happened to be on a route and he just came around the corner and looked and you were there, I think. Um, I mean, it's, it turns out that the way you went on Masters Wall sounds like it's maybe the first E9 in the country. How did that come about? Was it a known project? Other people it, it were trying? It was a known project. It was a known project. I think Ron had looked at it. John Redhead had looked at it. I went up there with John and watched him. Uh, try it and abseil down it. Uh, I watched him sort of clean all the footholds, mark all the uh, runners. And this placements. is John Redhead. John Redhead, yeah. Yeah. So he he really spent a long time looking looking at it and checking it out and all the runner placements. He didn't top rope it. He didn't practice the moves as I remember. Uh, that was a no no back then. Uh, and then so you could abseil down it, but not try the moves. That was the ethic. Uh, you could have so down it. I think he maybe pulled on. And when I did it, I pulled on and I tried a few moves on the crux, on the crux bit. So anyway, John Redhead tried it a few times. Then he went up and placed a bolt. Uh, and I, I think possibly he was going to try and go left, which was not the route I watched him on <clears throat> before the bolt was placed. And at the time, um, I just thought it was wrong to place bolts on mountain rock. Um, I wanted to try and do routes like my sort of old heroes like Fawcett and Livesey and, and Joe Brown and stuff and they, they wouldn't have abseiled down it practice it and top roping and stuff I wanted to do it from the ground up so I abseiled down it I did exactly the same line that John did I spent a long time looking at the runner placements so over a day looking and checking every single runner placement and I knew where all the runner placements were and then where the bolt was I took the bolt out 
I tied the descender off and I had a look at those moves uh, just on the descender so I knew what I was going to do when I got there. I knew where the finger holes were. So you were prepared? Yeah, I didn't mark it or chalk it or put tick marks on it like you would do now. I mean, if you're doing it now, you'd probably top rope it and put tick marks all over the place and have it sussed. But that would have been absolutely cheating back then. And what did it... Obviously, a lot of preparation going into it, and I'm just trying to think what... what, what? A lot of preparation, not only that, Andy, I, I did a lot of soloing. So I knew that I was going to be in a death, death situation, and I wanted to be absolutely used, used mentally uh, to be familiar with the fact that if I made any f mistake when I was climbing, it would be fatal. So every single day, I went up, and I soloed different routes. And when I went there to, to look at Master's Wall, every time I'd go up, I'd solo a different route to get to the top to upsell down. So I soloed um, curving a ret, the boldest. I soloed Great Wall. I'd done Great Wall a few years before, but I couldn't remember it, and I just started up it. That's E36A. Yeah. So I was very used to doing dangerous things. Yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of climbers, Great Wall's like a big ambition, and you're just soloing up there. So what, did it feel, what does it feel like before you set off on a... A bold ascent like that how do you calm your nerves I'm thinking there might be people listening who are not trying to do that they might be trying to do their first E1 or their first whatever as a trad route I think, I think the, the thing is you have to be you want to be ultra focused you're really focused you're really focused and really concentrated and on something really dangerous like that you have to give yourself the uh, the thing in your mind that you can come down so if if I hadn't felt good, I could have gone up to the first wire placement and come down and gone, no, I don't feel good today. Um, <clears throat> so you always have that let out. You don't want to commit yourself to like, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to keep going. Because if you don't feel good, you, you want to come did down. Did you have multiple attempts or was it just no, the day? No, I did it. I did it. I did it that on, on the first go. Um, but I got to the, you climb up about, I don't know, you climb up a groove, you get some wires, then you go up another 20 or 30 foot, then you get a decentish run a placement then you traverse right and you go up the flakes where it's got the, the picture of me on the front cover of high and when you're there you can't go down i couldn't reverse it and i was fighting for my life then i'd have done anything you know if somebody had said do you want a rope and i said yes i'd have grabbed it and come back down but i couldn't and you i was were committed. In this position. i was committed and i was absolutely so this was unknown territory really in terms of the unknown movement. territory yeah. and i was fighting for my life i was absolutely terrified uh, and I just remember thinking I just want to get to those to the foothold to where I looked at an abseil where the next little wire placement was and I just said to him as soon as I get there I'm off I'm, I'm going to get rescued uh, and I got there stood on the on the foothold composed myself and I had to think about it and I thought I never want to climb that bottom bit again I put the wire placements in and I thought I'm, I'm just going to go for it now and I managed to sort of in that you know recompose myself when I was on that foothold and, and just refocus and, and it was you know it was almost like doing two routes I got there got to the foothold got the wires in I knew where the next holes were got to them and unfortunately did them if I thought there were wires there they might have held but you don't know that they're going to hold what did it feel like at the top of that was it wow excitement great or was it a bit of relief what a mixture of stuff what was it um yeah it was relief excitement you don't really you know, whenever you do something really hard like that, that's groundbreaking, you never think, wow, that's just something that's that's new or that's groundbreaking. You just, you know, that's a good route. And then yeah. I came down and did another route after. It yeah. wasn't like I ran down to the cafe. I, did, yeah. I think I did a first, I did another route called Perspire, which had a point of aid on it. And I went and did that, yeah, yeah. freed the aid point on it. But typically, I can't believe when I look back at my diary that I do these these big days and they go right let's go do another route now because it's a, a you know an hour and a half walk to get here so while we're here we might as well keep climbing yeah did it was there a point where you moved away from those sort of bold first ascents? yes well i did i did um, i mean i've trained so hard to get myself mentally in in into that position and i was really comfortable climbing uh dangerous route so uh i think i had a rest day the next day and the day after that i went up to the cromlech and then soloed all those routes up there and i thought while i'm in this great frame of mind let's just do it let's just 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 have one big day and i went up and soloed right wall left wall cenotaph memory lane cemetery gates ivy sepulchre the foil 
So I just sold them a load of really bloody hard stuff. And I just woke up that morning, I thought, you know what, crazy, but I just thought, I don't believe I'm gonna die today. And I'm gonna do it today. This is not my last day on earth. And I went up and did all those routes and then I stopped soloing for, I don't know if I ever really soloed again. I, I certainly didn't solo for the next year. And then a couple of days later, that climbing partner who I said, who I met at Stonia Middleton, he died on uh, Carrick Wasted, he broke a hold. So that was a couple of, so that, the next day after I climbed on the Cromlech, I hitched back to Sheffield, to Stony. He stayed there and then, and then died the next day. So then you think, wait, what, you just, I just didn't do it and I had other goals. Yeah. My goals weren't, you know, I'd achieved that goal, I'd done that and I moved on to other stuff, like doing hard routes. I know, are you, I know you're planning on maybe going back up to the, the Cromlet, but I think you'll probably have a rope this time, aren't you, to go and do a few classics. I'm not even going to lead anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to rope everything. But that'd be great, wouldn't it, just to be back up there and remember? Yes, and yeah, it'd be, great, it'd be great to go up there. I'd love to go up there. So many memories. I've wanted to go up there with a bunch of friends for a long time, uh, and I've not been back to the Cromlet since then. That was 83. That was the last time I went there. So I'd love to go up there. We're yeah. going to go uh, next week and, and try and, you know, love to top rope left wall and right wall and Brilliant. cenotaph and stuff yeah so excellent. yeah i'm re really looking forward to it it's great to go back there and you know that was when i was a kid the ultimate the ultimate would be climbing on the cromlech and i remember the first time we went to the lamberis pass we were so excited we we're going to go on the cromlech and it was in the full sun and we were like we're going to the cromlech and our climbing master feet leavers said there's too many people out there we're going to go on dinner and martin it was in the shade and it was slapping we're like oh no, oh, yeah. it's taken away. Because for from people us. listening who don't know the Cromlech, I mean, it's really impressive, isn't it? It's like a big open book corner, but when you're there, even before you set off, there's just a massive sense of exposure. It's like yes. the ground oh, yeah. just falls away. Yeah, yeah. And it's this. Yeah, as soon as you pull off the ground, you feel like you're 200 foot Vertical, up. 150 foot, beautiful wall with these. And there's just so much history with all the roots yes. as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, all the exactly. pioneers have gone there and left the mark, haven't they? Yes, yeah. You think of Joe Brown going up there and doing, you know, uh, Cenotaph and Dumberlands, I think, did um, Cemetery Gates, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Um, and then Ron doing stuff. And then years later, I was, well, no, it wasn't years later, I think it was probably the same year that we went up and climbed on Dennis Mott. We went up the next time, we climbed on the Cromlech. Ron Fawcett had just done Lord of the Flies, and he was up there filming Lord of the Flies in this, um, with Zipper in this green tracksuit, and we were just, um, we were just blown away to see Ron, and he was filming this route, and I did a route around the corner called Ivy Sepulchre. Uh, which was hard VS, which was my l absolute limit. That was my limit, hard VS. And uh, as Ron had finished, he was walking down the crag and he turned around and looked at the crag. And I thought, there's nobody else on the crag. Ron Fawcett has seen me climbing. And I was just like, Ron's seen me climbing. I know it's pathetic, but I'm like, I think I was only 15 or 16 or something like that. But it was like, oh, Ron Fawcett's seen me climbing. Yeah. Oh, woo. It was amazing. Yeah. Quite funny. Brilliant. I remember being up there as a, as a youth as well and, and, and meeting Ron in his little shorts mm. and he was, he was always tan wasn't he, Ron's always tan yes, and Jill yeah. was there with she had some little plastic gloves on and she was rubbing sun cream into his back Really? We, yeah. we had our big hexes dangling around we were like yeah. oh wow. Yeah. yeah. When, when was your first trip to America, Joe? We were chatting about that earlier. Uh, I went to America when I was 19 in 80, 1981. And how did that influence you, that trip? I know you um, bumped into John Backer didn't you? Yes, well, at the time, I'd done pretty much all the hardest routes in Britain. I'd just done a, a route called Little Plum at Stony, which, which was quite hard, which a lot of the good climbers had tried not been able to do. So you were and looking was, for a new challenge? I wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to do the hardest routes in the world. I felt like I was the best climber in Britain. I wanted to go out there and test myself. And at the time, the hardest routes were over there. There's a route called Genesis, done by Phil... Uh, what's his name Jim Collins, Jim Collins. Yeah, yeah Jim Collins uh that would be in the magazines I know uh I was friends with Kim Carrigan and Dougie Hall they'd been there they tried it they couldn't do it a lot of good climbers had tried and failed to do that so if I can go there and do that route um that would really establish me and make a name for Jim myself. Collins of course he's the guy who wrote the the business best-selling book good to great did you know that no I didn't know oh, that yeah no. yeah so he's you know so how did it go? Did you? So he was, he was, you know, on, on the pull-up bar at the gym in the poly, 
there was a finger edge and it, on it it said Jim Collins was here. So he was the man. We read this article, or he read with this article of him doing this traverse when he was training to do Genesis and he used to travel with a pin in his teeth so he didn't need to stop to burst the blood, the blood blisters on his fingers. So he'd be going around and get blood blisters and he'd stop and he'd just burst the blood blisters and just carry on. And we were just like, whoa, Jim Collins. And then he had, um, I think there was some steps and on the underneath of the steps you could do ladders and hang on those things and do pull-ups and stuff and he did stuff like that. So you did that with <coughs> Genesis? Uh, yes, so I trained really hard for it. I did a lot of bouldering. I spent that summer in Tom's roof, a little cave at Stony Middleton, doing all these eliminates and bouldering. Um, nobody was bouldering at that time, really. Um, and I was doing all these eliminates. Everybody thought I was crazy, and they were going off doing all these different climbs. And they're, what did you do today? Oh, I was at Stadium Tom's roof in this dirty little cave doing these traverses. So you were really focused on the goal. So I was really, really bloody strong. And uh, another route of his was called Psycho, which is an overhang. So I wanted to be really strong for this overhang. And in fact, when I got there, I went up and tried it twice on a very cold day, uh, then lowered off. There was three of us on the belay, so I lowered off. Chris Gorham, Skip Gurren kept trying it. Uh, then I went back the next day and did it first go. So I was just so, so much stronger than the route from doing all these boulder problems on these caves. So I did both of them very quickly. Uh, then I went to Joshua Tree, and one of the hardest routes there was a route called Equinox. And that was route I really wanted to do. And I met some American climbers, and I met a guy called Randy Vogel who wrote the Joshua Tree Guide before I went there. And I said to him, what about Equinox? That was the hardest route. John Backer top roped it, and it took him three days to top rope it. He'd not let it. And he said to me, <coughs> forget it. He said, you're not gonna do it. You'll cut your hands to shreds. It took back a three days to top rope it. And to say that to you, to an 18, 19 year old kid, I was just like, whoa, I have to go and do that now. That was the challenge. That was the challenge. And then I went to America. I met John Backer that winter and became a very good friend of his. And we did a lot of climbing together. How and did he influence you, John? Because obviously well, he, he was, was very encouraging. He was really encouraging. He was very, very nice. Um, he'd be, yeah, he, he was very nice and he said to me, he gave me the idea of on-siting it. So he said, I think you can flash it. So then it became a, not just to do it, but a, I, I wanted to try and flash it. So I did loads of ladders, I did loads of boulder problem cracks, I did all the cracks were there. Um, and I got really, really strong. We were just camping at the time, <clears throat> so, I, you know, the, our food was healthy. And all I was doing was, was training. And on sighting, for people listening who, don't, who might not be climbing or under, understanding the terminology, so it, this is the idea that you're going you're gonna to climb from the bottom to the top without any falls. Without, without so no falling, might, not waiting It might be a safe gear. route, so it might not be that you're going to hurt yourself, but it's almost like it's a performance thing. You want to do it without falling Yeah, off. if you have one fall, that's the end of it. So you cannot so fall. So it's high pressure. So it's high pressure. You don't want to fall. So having one fall in the route... You lower down, you do it next go, but you've done it with one fall. And I really wanted to do it without fall, so you walk straight up to it, and it's just, just as pure as it can get. You walk and up to it and climb it. I guess you could chat to people and get a bit of information, or you might purposefully not chat to them, but there was no uh, videos of people doing yeah, there it was like no, today. Yeah, no yeah, there was no videos, and also it's a finger crack, so there was no sequence to it. It wasn't like there's a pocket out left that you have to get. I knew where the crux was, mm. so I knew, I knew that it was hard above you know, a certain area. Uh, I climbed up about 15 foot, put runners in, then reversed down uh, without waiting any yeah. gear, and then did it in a did it in a wonderful. I length. didn't flash it, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I was gutted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's it's hard because you've got to place wires. Yeah. Brilliant so, route. Yeah, yeah. Part of the skill is seeing a runner placement and being able to put it in straight away. So I knew exactly what a rock three looked like, and I put it in there. You can't. On an on-site like that, you can't climb up and then get there and go, rock three, oh no, it's a rock two, oh no, it's a rock four, and stop fumbling around with your wires. You've got, you get one go, you throw the wire in, it's got to be perfect, you clip it and you go. Speed. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to climb it quickly. And this was before um, half friends or anything, so you couldn't get friends in it or any other thing. So, so you, you spent quite wires. a bit of time um, being in that, you know, on-siting was the kind of holy grail at the time. Yes, and that, that, that for me, I don't think I've ever been as fit 
for a route since and was really, really fit for that route. Absolutely smoked it, absolutely smoked it. Had loads left, loads left in the tank. Uh, I was really psyched, you know, I, I kind of, you know, put one runner in and did a big run out and stuff, so I was really psyched for the thing. And John Backer was his background, he'd come from a different sport because he, he was a bit of a dude, wasn't he? Uh, yes, John Backer came from, he was the one that really sort of helped me with my training and he was the first person that um, sort of, I mean, I remember him just saying, though I'm doing this training for bouldering. I do that for bouldering, I'm thinking, training for bouldering? I mean, it seemed ridiculous. I'd never heard of anybody training for bouldering for power, but he was really into bouldering, soloing, and doing routes. So he took bouldering and everything very seriously. And I trained with him, and we did rope ladders, we did uh, dead hangs. He was the first person. This is real pioneering stuff. It, was, it, it was really, because the way he was doing it, and he was having rest days, and it was he read a lot of books on athletics and sports training. He had some, I remember he had some Russian books translated into America into American, into English, which he read. Um, he was the first guy that I was hanging on a hold and he goes, I don't hang it, I crimp it. I'd never heard the word crimp before. And I'm like, what's crimp? And he goes, oh, it's when you get your thumb over your finger and you, you arch your fingers up. So Amazing. to me, that was, that was revolutionary, hanging and crimping. I didn't know that we never, it was just you grab a hold and pull on it. You know, see, he, he had all that. And he was the one that got me having rest days, more methodical, I think. Uh, and power training and it's just what sort of things now. would he do for power training uh, he'd do power pulls so he'd do pull ups with weight added around his waist he'd time his hangs he'd time his rests um, he trained nearly always for power and under the principle that if your power improves your endurance will improve it's harder to get power than it is to get endurance uh, you retain power longer than endurance, so you want to train power. So, for instance, if you're climbing a 100-foot climb and you're struggling on each move because your power's not that good, if you get stronger in your power and those moves become easier, your endurance will increase because you're not struggling so much on the moves. Okay, you're still going to get pumped, but you're going to find the moves easier, so your endurance will improve. But if your endurance improves, your power won't improve. And I see people now failing on long routes thinking it's their endurance, but I'm looking at them and they're struggling so much on the moves, you're thinking, actually, you want to go and work, and work on your power so you find that move at 20 foot a bit easier and all your, the other Your moves, max strength and then goes you, up. Your yeah. max strength go up and then your endurance will improve. So it's not always as simple as, you, as it seems when you're falling off the top of a 100 foot climb. You, know, you, need a, you need a balance of everything. In terms of, in that period of on-sign, in terms of the mindset, and, and mental tactics, did John Backer influence you in any way or other people you saw, wow, what are they doing or, did, or was it stuff you worked out yourself? No, I was always, I was always, if I met somebody like Backer, I would made it my point to get every single piece of information that he'd ever got, everything, everything I wanted to know, his thoughts on footwork, power, finger strength, endurance, everything. So I just asked question, question, question. Every climber I met, what do you do? How do you train? When you're arrested, did, did, did. so I got a lot of stuff uh, like that. I, before I went to America, uh, there was a guy called Pete O'Donovan, and he was Pod. he'd been to America, and he really helped me. And he was the one that he was actually one of the first ones that t spoke about rest days. And I was climbing every day really hard. And then I remember going up to Millstone and trying this E25C, and I climbed about ten foot, got pumped, and fell off. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I trained so hard yesterday, and I, you know. And he was like, maybe you need a rest day. Maybe you need to recover. I'm like, oh, what's that? Never thought of that. So he helped me out and he <coughs> He was a out. pioneer pod, wasn't he, in a way? He really he was, was. He was yeah, there he making was his rucksacks. It's the first first uh, time I fingerboarded was with pod. And then yeah. he had a board in his workshop. Yes. And he was way he, ahead. He, really, he, really he was, was a way pioneer. ahead of his time. And then, you know, the wall on Broomgrove, on Broomgrove yeah. Road, that, was, that was, wasn't called Broomgrove, that was called Pod's Wall. So this is a little wall underneath the uh, Halls of Residence at one of the Hallam University blocks with these yes. tiny holes on it, and it stays dry, doesn't it? Yeah, it stays dry, and it's super finger. I, I went there about a month ago just to see what it was like. I was sat here, I had nothing to do, it was nice. And I thought, well, perfect, perfect friction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. And I, I managed to do the moves. I didn't do the whole thing. But I, it was horrific just doing the moves. Yeah. Um, 
but I had, we used to, this is before climbing walls, so uh, we used to go there and just go traversing backwards and forwards along this wall. It's about, what was it, about 20 foot long? But they are really small holes. But they're they? really small. I mean, it's a very, very hard traverse. And I used to just go backwards and forwards across that thing like it was nothing and hang there and shake out. I mean, just do it once is probably 7B plus 7C. But the on-sighting, I guess, and that's, you know, so you were in, in that frame of mind, uh, wanting to flash in on-site routes, and then competitions came around. When comps started, presumably you, like, we were doing a bit of on-sighting and red pointing. Uh, well, I think one of the things that's important that for British climbers, we were yo-yoing stuff and the French were red, uh, were red pointing. So they were absolutely down, practicing the moves and then trying to do it from bottom to top. So if they got a little bit tired or they didn't think they'd do it, they'd let go and they'd practice it and go back to it. For us, we were yo-yoing. So every single time you climbed up, you were trying to get as high as you possibly could. So you're fighting like hell. So every time you do a route, it's like you're on sighting above the last uh, wire that you're above. So more so sort of power was, endurance based as yeah, opposed to the power. Yeah, and also just reading, reading stuff quickly and being in, in a position where you're hanging on for grim death, pumped out your brain. And I think that helped us going into competitions because we were used to, it's like you're doing a mini onsite every single time you climb. Whereas the French and Germans and other guys, they were doing onsites or they were doing red point and they didn't have that, that real fight every time you go you know, above your last wire, which is what we had. Um, so yeah, the competitions came about in around 87. And uh, that's when we started climbing abroad and I was injured in 84, so I missed that transition from yo-yoing into red pointing. So I was injured then, I didn't climb for two years. When I came back to climbing, British climbers were red pointing stuff. Uh, and that totally changed. And then I, you know, you're not gonna start yo-yoing, so I just joined, so that's the game. The game now is red point and competitions. And yeah, that's that's what I did. I think the first time I red pointed, I was actually with you. I didn't even, I'd never heard of it. We're at Malham, and uh, I think Zippy was down, Chris Plant, and I, and I fell off going for the chains of obsession at the time. Right. And I was gutted because I wanted <laughs> to on site it, devastated, and I came down. And you'd you'd just come back from a competition in Japan, and I was amazed. This guy, he's been off competing, he's flown back, and now he's at Malham having a big workout, literally after a few hours sleep. So <laughs> yeah. that's how driven and focused you yes. were. Yeah. And I lowered off, devastated. And he said, well, just red point it. And I was like, sorry, what's that mean? <laughs> and it's like, and, and I was like, all right. It didn't, to me, it was like, that doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's proper or whatever. But yeah. I went up and did it. And I still got a big buzz at the chain. And yeah. it surprised me. Yeah. And it still really enjoyed it. And obviously I had to fight even more because I was still pumped from the first go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're still so, clipping everything, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, so it was a real, I mean, that was quite late for me, 1990. But did you... When you when you came to Red Pointing, yeah, this is it. This is the way to to move. Or did you were you still um, spending your energy doing both? Uh, I mean, only, once I started Red Pointing, I never yo-yoed anything ever again. Really, yeah. it was just Red Point. Um, but then I was really I was really interested in climbing competitions. I didn't enjoy the first climbing competitions. Um, I didn't really. What was the challenge for you with because obviously you you're, you're flying around the world, putting your reputation on the line doing the hardest routes in the world, Joshua yeah. Tree or whatever. Yeah. So in, on paper, you'd think, well, Jerry's made for competitions because it's on sighting, fighting. Yeah. And obviously you did, I mean, Leeds, you won that one. Yeah. Well, I did, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I was on sighting, but then he was back then on the rock. Uh, but when it came to climbing on plastic, it was a different, it, it was a different, Completely different from climbing on rock. Was it the like the movement? The, uh, the movement, the, movement the holds, uh, the pressure of being in a competition with the crowds. Uh, the crowd being told when to climb. Uh, everybody watching the pressure, you know, the fear of failure, and thinking, "Oh man, I'm just going to blow this." Everything was different. And the first climbing competitions I went to, I didn't climb well at all. And that kind of annoyed me. So then I was like, I don't like these competitions. I bloody hate the things, but I've got to, I've got to come back and do another one because I can't finish on a failure. So it's just like, I've got to go back. I've got to go back and do one and win one. And did you analyze kind of it and think, what, what are the, I don't know, let's, if, if I was to say to you now, what do you think were the, the big three things that you had to deal with to start winning? 
Well, I had to get my head in shape. So I, there was a competition in Germany and I, I was climbing really well. I was climbing consistent 8A, 8A plus on site. And I went to the competition and in the first round, I struggled like hell on a, on a 7B plus. I barely did it. And that was a big wake up call. And then I started to think, oh man, I've got to get stronger in my head. No matter how much stronger I get in my fingers, how much more power I get, how much better I get on all aspects, unless I can control my mind and, and my nerves, I'm just gonna struggle on these things. Uh, so that's when I started researching, you know, sports psychology, how I should be thinking. And what did you learn and what did you change on that um, journey? Uh, the, the main thing was, I think they had the problem with my self-image. So I was telling myself, I don't like competitions. I don't like it. I, I don't climb good in competitions, I, you know, because I hadn't done. So I had to change my self-image of how I thought about myself to, I love climbing competitions. I don't mind how long I'm in isolation. I don't mind, I don't mind what time they put me out there. I don't matter how many people are watching. I don't mind which country it's in. I love climbing competitions. I absolutely love them. And I want to win them so bad. I don't mind what pain I go through to do that climbing competition. I love it and I want to do that climbing competition. I just used to write down endless things on paper of why I like competitions, why it was important for me to win that climbing competition more than anybody else. Why was it important for me to win Germany? I'm not from Germany, but I really want to win it more than anybody else. Uh, I wrote endless lists of what would my approach be if something went wrong? What if they told me you're climbing in half an hour, a hold's turned and you're now climbing in two hours? That could throw you and you go, oh, I want to climb now, I've done it on the wall. So you were thinking about so all thinking the scenarios. About all the scenarios of things going wrong and what would my response be? What yeah. would my response be if I'd completely cocked up the first move, got pumped, I get to a rest uh, and uh, my arms are blown? So it's like what all these things that maybe could induce fear and you're trying to turn them into a positive. Yeah, so I went there and I knew that I was ready for any scenario of something going wrong and I knew what my response would be. Even things like, you know, what would I do if I chalked up near the top, I hadn't done my chalk bag up properly and my chalk bag falls to the floor. I haven't got any chalk and it's greasy. What would I do? Well, I, I thought to myself, well, I've done loads of routes without chalk and I practiced doing climbs without chalk. So I, I, was, I was used to that. So I, there, there wouldn't be a second in my brain where I go, oh no, what do I do? It was always like, right, I'm ready for this. I did that route without chalk. When I did, you know, liquid amber, I never chalked up a hard route you can't chop. I can, I can climb 8C plus without chalk. So I was ready for every scenario of, of things going wrong, and that gave me more confidence. I did a lot of work de-pumping and shaking out and working on my resting. So I said to myself, it doesn't matter where I get pumped, I can de-pump anywhere. If I get any sort of little foothold or anything, I can shake out. So I'd go there and say, I can shake out anywhere. Um, I did that and then I worked a lot on my sort of visualization before before the climb. So I'd walk out and had everything reversed. I visualized myself walking out to the crowd. I visualized myself tying on the rope. I visualized myself waving and smiling at the crowd. I practiced it. So I practiced that in my head again and again. So I didn't walk out to the crowd, you know, and go, what am I gonna do? I did exactly the same thing every time. I walked out, smiled, waved at the crowd, tied on the rope, looked at the route. Uh, I visualized it once, imagining where the cruxes are, feeling the moves, and then I visualized it again, watching myself from the audience climbing the route. And then when you're on the route, so that's all that stuff, if you like, dealing yeah. with all the pressure before, the day before, the training. Yeah, I did all the isolation. negative stuff. I did all the negative stuff about what would go wrong a long time before. But then just before, that's what I do. I walk out, smile at the crowd, turn on the rope, visualize it, feeling it, visualize it, looking at it, turn the, and then I'd start climbing. So there's no gap in any of the, of the visualizations where you go visualize it, then you have a cup of coffee and think about something else. It was just bang, 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 climb. So once everybody says in all sports, once you start, you're okay. They say it in the FA Cup, don't they? Once, once, you, once the whistle goes and they start kicking the football, the, the nerves go down, it's beforehand. So if you can keep your mind occupied with positive stuff completely in a, in a set way before you start, there's no gap in there where, there's not a, a, a 30 second gap where you can think of something negative. That's how, that's how I yeah. approached it. Yeah, yeah. and 
red pointing, hard red pointing, people who are um, listening who don't know the terms. So this is where you basically, in your case often, you're either doing trying the hardest routes in the world that have already been done, or you're doing the hardest routes in the world. Pieces of rock that no one's ever climbed up, you know they're gonna be hard. You can try the moves, train for them, and then you've got to start at the bottom and go up to the top. Um, tell us a little bit about that in terms of the preparation, the mindset beforehand, and then later we can talk a little bit about when you're on the route. How did you yeah. approach that? And let's talk about, let's pick a route. Probably liquid amber was quite, a big, quite, Obviously, was quite a big route for me. Lower Pentruin, next to the ocean, opposite the school where yeah. you went. Yeah, so I was, so I big was connection. You know, brought up from that area. Yeah. Um, I bolted that three or four years before I did it and I couldn't even do any of the moves. <clears throat> and then I went back the next year, linked some of the moves. Then I went back the next year, fell off the last move. So I would have done it that year. And then the next day I crashed my motorbike and then I broke my foot my ankle oh i broke my foot my ribs my wrist smashed myself up pretty bad yeah. so i went back the next year and did it the next year yeah because um, i mean just to just to pause out i was chatting to somebody the other day who's his partner he's from germany and his partner came over to sort of try and understand about training and such like in sheffield and she said it wasn't it wasn't just the training it was motorbikes it was it was a, it was an intense place yes, it wasn't was it full, a full a full adrenaline and it obviously was, you, absolutely it was everything, it, she, it was everything. she was like blown away with it like yeah. you know she said that it's, it's crazy this oh, place it's sheffield. completely crazy i think i fell off the last move of that then i went back to sheffield the next day and then i went to i had a, a van i put my bike in the back of a van drove to cadwell park on a track day and uh, <laughs> I was driving a race, around a racetrack at nearly 100, you know, 130, 40 miles an hour. Uh, absolutely mad. You know, yeah. it, it, you couldn't drive the bike on the road. But you survived it. It was only a trap bike. But yeah. I learned my lesson and didn't do it anymore. That's one of the reasons I started playing golf, because I thought, I want to try and do something. I can't get injured. It's a proper rest day. And that's when he's... So anyway, um, I fell off the remove. Then I went back the next year. Uh, the f and I, I struggled the first day. I did some big links the second day, and I did it first try uh, the next day. Incredible so progression. Went, yeah, so, and, and that was over a period of, I went there one day, went back to Sheffield, went there another way, went somewhere else. Then I went back there to actually do it. I had a rest day the day before, and I did, um, I had an active rest day. So I did, I think I did axle attack seven times. So I just did it moving, so I felt nice and Doesn't loose. Doesn't sound like a rest day to me. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. so I did. I yeah, did yeah. that many, many times. So just, not really getting pumped, but just lots of moving, yeah, yeah, yeah. feeling relaxed and stuff. And I was going to try it the next morning. I think it was about six, seven o'clock. I'd eaten. I felt really good, and the weather was good. And I remember thinking, "Oh bugger, I can't stand the pressure. Let's go and try it now." So I tried it on the same day. So I went back and I did it that evening and climbed up, reversed down. So that was your active rest day in the morning and then you just thought you'd just do yeah, it? Yeah, it was in the day. I mean, I was climbing all day and then I was, yeah. just, I was just getting more and more nervous. I thought, God, I feel really good. And I just thought, I can't wait. So that's back, to, that's back to the sort of pressure off the rock, isn't it? Yes. That's one of the hardest things to deal with. Yeah, is, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, um, maybe I should have waited. I don't know, but I, was, I just felt good and I just couldn't stand it. I thought, all right, I feel really good now. Let's just, let's just try it. And, and how I, did it how did it feel clipping the chains? Yeah, for good. I mean, it's one of those it's one of those strange things when you do hard routes. You always think, oh, that wasn't that bad. Now I'm going to do something really hard. Um, That's amazing. It, it was so you, it, one yeah. of those things. You know, I smoked it really, and you yeah. think, oh, no, wait till I do something. You know, wait till I what really grade do something is that? hard. Uh, that's given eight C plus now. Was that one of the Was that the first? That one? was the first one. Yeah. In Britain or the world? Uh, that was the first one in the world. Wow. I think. Yeah, I did it a few weeks before Ben did Hubble. Right. Um, yeah, so it was, it was given AC at the time, but all, all grades have got adjusted, haven't they? Sure. Oh, I mean, some of the grades at Stony Middleton, and I, you know, they, they were ridiculous. They were very hard. But we never, you know, I've never had a, a, a route uh, downgraded. You know, that would be the ultimate insult. You know, to so do you a were route, quite... say it's AC, or any, any route, you know, that's going back to the old days. You don't want somebody to come and write in the new routes book at Stoney Middleton and you've done an E5 and somebody screw it out and go, only E4, you know. 
that was the weekend back then, wasn't it? Sitting in the cafe with a new route, yeah, yeah. thinking it's raining, what should we do? Let's flick through there and slag somebody off. Yeah, it was brutal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was brutal, yeah. So you, you really, you really graded stuff Which probably hard. explains why, you know, a lot of the British grades, a bit like Bukes and some of these other places, the tough grades, aren't they? But you, yes. you don't come to Britain for soft touches, really. No, sports yeah, yeah. no, they're hard. They're really hard. I mean, some of the route, I mean, I did Dead Banana at Stony the other day. It was hard VS. It was always hard VS 5A, 5B. It's E25C. I'm pretty hard at that. You just can't believe how that, you know, certainly peak grades were very hard. How did you deal with, you talked about injury on the motorbike. I know you had other injuries. I think you had some elbow stuff. Yeah. Over the years, quite a few injuries. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I, I didn't deal with that. I mean, I got very depressed and I got very down when I was, I was 20, I think I was 24. I didn't climb for two years. I never thought I was going to climb again. I had a problem with a nerve. So I think it's called top carpal tunnel syndrome. So every time I strained my elbow, I was getting pain in my elbows. I got it diagnosed and as did tendonitis. did you think this is it? I didn't think I was going to climb again because I, it was diagnosed as tendonitis and I'd spend a lot, so much work on tendonitis. I spent two, much, two months in Los Angeles uh, seeing a, a guy there who was supposed to be the best guy, one of the best guys in the world, had all these Olympic athletes. He said it was tendonitis. And uh, John Backer very kindly um, paid for me to go and see that guy. And then I paid for some of the rehab. I stayed at John Backer's mum's house in LA and just spent my whole time going there. Trying to solve the problem. Trying to solve it, you know, and I, I, I went on a, an amazing diet um, it's pretty like a kind of vegan diet, no alcohol, no caffeine. It was just brown rice and vegetables for nearly every meal, just trying to cleanse my body. That didn't work. Um, I tried everything and nothing worked. And then I was in Germany. Uh, a guy called Norbert Sandner, knew a professor in the, uh, at the Olympic Hospital who was very good on that kind of thing. He was interested in injuries. He looked at me. He'd never done that operation before. He said, yeah, you've got a problem with your nerves we'll operate tomorrow and we went from there and then it probably probably eight nine months after that i started climbing again yeah so that was a really tough time especially you know living in sheffield i think at that time antoine and Mar antoine and ministerial came over and on you know solo revelations i couldn't do anything i had no i couldn't do anything what did that feel like oh it's horrific I mean, I'd been climbing with them six months before in Joshua Tree, and I was climbing way better than them. So for him to come over and do that was torture because I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go, oh, right, I'll do something new or harder. You know, it yeah. was really tough. Yeah. It, it I, mean, was a I know time. You, you spent time, you, you talked about Germany there, but you spent quite a bit of time in Germany. Did you actually live over there for a spell? Uh, I lived over there. I had a German girlfriend, and I lived over in. Um, no, I never rented a place, but I let us in the Frank Kurt's house in the Frank and Jura. And how did they influence you, um, Wolfgang? Uh, they were, I'd say they influenced me in their attitude to, you know, their performance, what they'd done, egos, stuff like that. I respected them in, in that, you know, they were, both of them were very modest. If, you know, if you went out for dinner with Wolfgang and you were a non-climber, you'd never know at the end of the meal that he was a, one of the best climbers in the world. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, you know, not blabbing on about what you've done and stuff like that, so it influenced me in that way. Um, when I first went over there, I was climbing a lot better than they were. Um, but we had Maybe you influenced them in a way. What do you think yeah, they took? Yeah, I think influenced what did, them What did they take from you? Uh, well, then, I mean, Wolfgang improved phenomenally. If you think, when I first went over there, his hardest route was 70, 70 plus. I on-sighted it. That was their hardest route. It was called Heisenfinger. Uh, I did it first go, and then I did the first nine plus and the first ten minus. So it was a real big the kick face up. and all that area. Yeah, yeah, the face and equal. So it was a big kick up the arse for them. Within, I think, two or three years after that, he'd done punks in the gym. So he went from from. I mean, he really improved really really quickly. I mean, he's quite a specialist climber. He he was you know he couldn't on site anything to save his life. He didn't do competitions and he didn't really boulder and he didn't really climb that well on all different types of rock but if he found something that suited him he specialized and did it and he improved you know and did the first what was that 8b or 8b plus yeah and then obviously action direct uh yeah, yeah and then action direct he did yeah. wall street which is probably the first 8c 
uh, Wall Street's just horrific, horrific yeah. thing. Which and for the record, there. campus boarding, was that something that was over there? Is that where it started? Uh, was, yes, well, campus board was the name of the gym. So c well, campus was the gymnasium. Yeah. It was just a normal sort of fitness aerobics typey place. No climbers there. Norbert knew the owner. We didn't have anywhere to train in the winter of 88 when I was there. And he asked them if we could build a fingerboard to do pull-ups on. So he did, you know, he made, he got somebody to make the board with all these edges. I mean, Wolfgang and Kurt never would have done it. They were too lazy. <laughs> um, so Norbert got that done and then we ended up going to the gym, doing weights, pull-ups and using the, the fingerboard there. And then it got known as the campus board because that was the name of the gym. And I spent a full winter there in 88, uh, which was great fun. And every few days we'd go to campus and do fingerboarding and stuff. And I think Wolfgang didn't really do very much the first year. So he did 147, but that was about it. I, I mostly trained with Kurt and I wanted to go back to Fontainebleau and I wanted to go to, to Bukes. So I trained really hard for, for that. Uh, lost a load of weight and at the end of, the, at the end of that, uh, winter I could just one arm the campus board lock off and do 158 pretty easily and then I went to went to Bukes and repeated some 8B pluses which had just been done very quickly so I was, I was in good shape yeah <laughs> nice I want to talk a little bit about your book it's just been uh, reprinted mastermind I mean you must be very proud Jerry you've done that book you know starting out dyslexia did you ever think that you would end up writing a book um, I mean, never when you're never when you're younger. I mean, even writing climbing articles. So you we used to write a lot of climbing walls, but I had help and stuff. Um, and then with Revelations, I wrote that with Niall. So he sort of pretty much wrote it. We ghost wrote it together. Even though you do a lot of reading and writing yourself yeah. in it. Um, with Mastermind, it was different. Um, I ended up getting a computer with Siri on it, so I didn't type and write it. I just spoke into the computer Brilliant. like I had a secretary. Yeah, and the, that was the first thing I did so I thought no way I can type this book up so I and just sat there and dictated to the computer and that typed it out so that's how I wrote the thing and if somebody was going to buy this book Mastermind Mental Training for Climbers what are the big things they're going to take away from that because it's not just for people who write at the elite level is it? No, I think one of the, one of the I mean uh, we, it's just come out again so I read the whole book yeah. uh, two or three times again just a couple of months ago I think one of the really good things in there is the contributions from the other climbers. So I've got comp contributions from the best free soloers, the best red pointers, the people who've won multiple competitions, uh, people who've done dangerous climbs, people who, like Leah doing his base jumping and how he deals with stuff like that and dangerous routes. So I've got a, a widespread of the best climbers in their fields from all over the world. Sharing their experiences. Sharing their experiences. So. What I've put down is what my research and what's helped me, and they put what, what there is, and hopefully, I pretty much knew what they'd be thinking and I knew what made them tick. Um, hopefully, it would show people that the research says it, and if you look at them, they say it as well. So it's me, the research, years of research, and these are what the time top climbers are doing, and it's all the same thing. So that's probably what you want to be thinking. Yeah. And they all said the same thing. And, I knew and you also, in terms of, I know you're talking about the research, but I know you also, you've spent time playing golf with the competitions. I know you read a book that was about shooting, that you, you, yeah, you talked about shooting. helping. Yeah. And then I know yeah, you've done a lot of me. surfing as well. So anything from those worlds, surfing, shooting, golf, that, you, that, that feeds into this book, anything? Or um, it, it does a little, it does a little bit. Um, I think what really feeds into it is the help I had from uh, from Lou Hardy, who was the one of the top sports psychologists in the world, who uh, happened to be a climber, who happened to know a friend of mine in Amberis, and he helped me out hugely on the book. Uh, so that's uh, that was a big influence on the book. Um, so that helps, and then, like I said, just you know the contributions from some of the climbers. You know, if you want to c compete read what Killian Fishhuber says about competing. The guy's won so many competitions, so many competitions, or, you know, Alex Migos or, you know, or Andra, all those guys. You can read exactly what they think about before they do a red point or what they think about just before they do a climb or what they think 
is the reason why they're better than everybody else and it's all in there well, it's a brilliant book jerry and uh, yeah, thank thanks you. for doing it and uh, there's nothing else like it really out there is there no i wanted it to be comprehensive uh and it's it really is timeless because i know in 100 years time people are going to be thinking exactly the same thing about you know, when they're doing when they're climbing well what kind of mindset you're in when you're climbing well and they're just like oh, i'm just pretty relaxed and having a good time and just enjoying myself and everybody said the same thing and i think everybody who said that thought that they were different and that they thought that i'd think they'd be like i'm focused and i'm thinking about my footwork and thing they're not people are just trying to have a good time now to get your mind in that position is another thing i mean that's really bloody hard when you're trying to win the 100 meters in the olympics with all the cameras on you how do you just go oh, i'm just going to have a good time and smile and enjoy myself that's that's pretty bloody hard even when you've done mindset. all the preparation yeah i mean that's the mindset that you you really want to be in because you're not going to you're not going to climb or do any performance well if, you, if you're not very happy or you're miserable or you're frustrated you don't want to be in that sort of mindset yeah um well thanks jerry it's been great to chat and i hope you have a great day out on the uh up on the cromlet yes yeah, yeah thank you very Brilliant. much cheers all yeah. the best thank you thank you for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon.